Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is a renowned novelist. He's, uh, his novels include Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. There are some people who've read the books. Very good. And uh, he has a new book called Eating Animals. Is it a novel? No. We'll find out more. Please welcome Jonathan Safran Foer to West Coast Live. Boy, this was the plot of this was fantastic. <laughs> in, in fact, it is. Yeah. I mean, you win, uh, you, your character goes undercover, takes a look at turkey farms and the awful things that go on there. Uh, all kinds of farms. In fact, this book probably has far more suspense than any of my uh, novels have. Maybe that just says something about my choices as a fiction writer, but uh, <laughs> more likely it says something about this, this farming industry. I mean, the fact that in order to see where your food comes from, you have to be a kind of James Bond or Indiana Jones character um, is in a way the most, you know, people often ask me, what was the most surprising thing you found in the course of your research or the most horrific thing you found? And they're expecting me to say, oh, some, some bloody, gory, horrible thing. And in fact, it was this secrecy that you're alluding to that if you want to see the kind of farm that produces 99, more than 99% of the animals raised for meat in this country, you kind of have, you have to go in the middle of the night. I mean, there's absolutely no way, no way, and I would invite you all to try it. You really should. If uh, there's a tour, I think, that's been set up for this. <laughs> well, what's true is that a lot of these big, big uh, corporations have show farms. And so if, if, if such an industry person were in the room right now, he uh, would stand up and say, oh, here, please come, come to this place. And that's a, a kind of a show that they have for curious journalists. Um, but but it's, it's, of course, the exception. The, uh, this, this book is uh, sort of an, uh, an explanation of what we're doing to our, our, our planet because of factory farming and, and, it's, uh, and what happens to the animals in the way. And, and, and also it's a, a meditation about it that, that comes sort of out of the line of Peter Singer and his, and his philosophical thoughts about of the rights of animals, and so it's uh, it's not a novel. In case you were confused by how this began, but it's this uh, exploration of this. That, let's, let's. I wanted. Um, how did you meet the the person? It was a uh, it was C, wasn't it? Who who took you on this uh, thing? How do you how do you meet somebody who's able to get you into a a farm late at night? Um, let me just make w one little distinction. Something you said about it coming from the line of uh, Peter Singer or animal rights. I'm not an activist. Before I wrote this book, I wasn't an animal person. I, I didn't think of myself as an environmentalist. Um, I was a new father. I really wrote this book when my wife became pregnant with our first child, and I faced the prospect of having to feed somebody else. And that's, it's very different feeding someone else from feeding yourself. You know, I'll reach for a Coke, I'll reach for fries. It doesn't make much difference to me. But like most parents, I won't reach to give my kid a Coke, my three-year-old. Um, and he eats fries like any other kid, but I don't want it to be the centerpiece of his diet. In any case, um, in order to get to these farms, I had to do a lot of things that were very unlikely for someone like me to do. Um, and so the first thing I did was I wrote dozens and dozens of letters to farm corporations all over the country, Tyson, Smithfield, names that you guys know, Purdue. I got no responses, zero, total silence. Um, 
so ultimately, I, as they say, took the law into my own hands. Um, and by the way, I did take the law into my own hands. I never did anything illegal. Um, did you consult with an attorney as you were doing all of this? Oh, you bet. I mean, there's, there's, this is not a joking matter. I mean, the, the Bush administration passed an Animal Terrorism Act after September 11th that makes the kind of investigation I was doing, which is simply trying to see the kind of food I was going to feed my son, simply that makes it a terrorist act. Um, but I found ways of doing it so that, it, so that it, it was entirely legal. But I found animal activists around the country, in California, uh, in Iowa, Kansas, and um, found these legal loopholes and, and went in in the middle of the night. Um, and often we would have to go to many, many farms before we found one where they forgot to unlock one of the doors on one of these you know, 50 by 500 foot sheds that holds 50,000 birds. Did you, did you wear gloves? Gloves was just the beginning of it. <laughs> I, wore, I wore gloves, I wore, you know, I, I wore all black, because we were going in the middle of the night, and what one doesn't want in this situation is to be seen. Uh, I had a blowhorn in case an unleashed dog or um, a bull, there are occasionally bulls, left to roam among these sheds. Um, I brought, I brought a lot of things that, that would make this, <laughs> that, that suggest it's not a work of nonfiction. Um, and um, surgical booties on my shoes. The number one rule that this activist I went with told me was, do not touch an animal. Um, not because she was worried about my harming the animal, but because she was worried about me getting Campylobacter or some other disease. You know, these, our farms now are like petri dishes. You know, they are the perfect conditions for disease. It's not a coincidence that all of our farmed animals are fed antibiotics from birth until death. It's not a coincidence that swine flu, you know, which is ravaging our country right now, originated on a hog farm in North Carolina. You never hear that in the news. If CNN is talking about the origins of swine flu, which they don't ever call swine flu anymore, but H1N1, they talk about Mexico, as if in Mexico they were doing something that we wouldn't do here. But um, they've traced the genetic material to these farms in North Carolina. So um, if I was wearing gloves, it wasn't because I was afraid of leaving fingerprints. It was because I was afraid of dying. Or afraid of them leaving their uh, fingerprints on you in, in, in some way. Uh, and so when, when you went in, did, did, you, did you take cameras? Did you take a notebook? I mean, how did you, what did you, did you go in uh, to look for something in particular? Well, in fact, this stuff is fairly well documented because of undercover investigations. And if you spent a little bit of time on the internet, you could find your virtual way into a farm. But what I was curious about is um, what would it feel like to be in one? You know, reason leads us to a certain point when making our food decisions, but, but reason is not in the driver's seat. There are many informed people, good people, moral people, moralizing people, who have a good sense of what's going on on these farms but continue to eat their products. And the reason is emotions guide our food choices and psychology and cultural associations, what our grandparents fed us, what our parents fed us, the Thanksgiving turkey, having chicken soup when you're sick, barbecuing with your parents on the 4th of July. These things you know, really, really matter. And so I wanted any, any inquiry I made into this to include those things. And so when I was at this farm, at these farms, I should say, it's not that I saw anything that I hadn't seen before or hadn't known about before, but I felt personally implicated in a way that I hadn't. It's very You felt guilty. I felt like this is, this is here because I have asked for it to be here, which is true. The farmers I met 
I'm talking about factory farmers, small family farmers, by the way, which occupy a lot of this book and who are the heroes of this book in a, in a, in a sense. They all say they don't farm what they want to farm. They farm what they're asked to farm. It's like Wendell Berry's famous phrase of farming by proxy. You know, we are not all farmers, but in, in a sense we are. Um, the choices that we make when we go to the supermarket and we go to a restaurant um, resonate and, and they determine what is raised in this country. Part of that is, is that we are unfamiliar you know, with the food chain and what goes on in the act of, of, of butchering. I mean, in previous generations, people raised their own animals, their own crops, you know, they would butcher the, the cow, you know, the, hunt the deer for the venison and eat it. And there was a very real connection between uh, the hunting, the slaughter, uh, and the preparation and the survival. I mean, there was a linkage there that we don't have when we go to a supermarket and see things in a package. We don't see what's behind there. We're not connected in that way with it. I think that's absolutely right. If, if there were a factory farm on stage with us right now, people would be calling the cops. They would be throwing rocks at us. They would be crying, probably. Um, so, you know, my, in, in this book, it's not that I was trying to persuade anyone to reach a certain conclusion. Frankly, I'm not even sure about all of my own conclusions. It's a, it's a process. You know? have, you, have you been changing your thinking and evolving even after the book has gone to press? I have. I have, in, in, in part in response to changes in my life. You know, the circumstances I was saying before, our culture, our families, these are the most important um, inspirations for us when, when, when making food choices. But also the world has changed. I mean, since I published this book, there have been E. coli outbreaks all over the country. Um, since I published the book, the climate chief in the UK said that if we're gonna have any hope of saving our planet, we need to move toward vegetarianism globally. He is not a vegetarian. He is not an animal activist. Um, since I published this book, World Watch Institute revised their estimates of global greenhouse, greenhouse emissions and found that animal agriculture is responsible for 51%, which is to say if you care about the planet, you have to care about this. It's not only the most important cause of global warming, it's more important than every other cause combined. So. You never find news these days that um, encourages one to eat factory farmed meat. All of the news is contributing to this very comprehensive and I think very persuasive argument that um, we should just eat other things. Well, and also the idea that, that you could have a, a very small uh, boutique farm that does everything you know, properly or, or is not a factory farm, but is an individual farm, being able to feed not only 250 million people in this country, but the billions of people around the world. I mean, I mean, it's and it's not just meat that you you talk about. It's also the fisheries. I mean, there are countries that scour the bottom of the sea and 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 are wiping out you know the fisheries uh, on the planet as well in order to get this this protein to feed um, demanding populations. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not just a United States issue. It's a global issue. Well, I mean, the 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 nightmare. The real nightmare is that China and India are going to start to eat like we eat. Um, you know, the way we eat now is not like the way we used to eat. In America now, we eat 150 times as much chicken as we did 80 years ago. No, I'm curious about that. Is that, is that, that's 150 times as much chicken. Um, is that because the population is 150 times bigger? Or, uh, I mean, is that what you mean? No, I mean per person. Per person. So... 50 years ago, I would have eaten chicken twice a year? 
Well, you would have eaten a lot less chicken at each meal. I mean, this is the difference between how we eat now and how we used to eat. Our idea of a meal now is a plate, two-thirds of which is occupied by meat. And that was never the case historically. Um, and it's not because we woke up one morning and said, man, chicken is delicious. You know, why didn't we realize this before? We should eat a lot of it. It's, it's because it was... So Particularly if it's deep fried. Right. Uh, what happened is corporations woke up, these agribusiness corporations woke up and said, man, we can make this very, very cheap. Um, you know, it's not necessary as we used to think to raise healthy animals. We could raise sick animals and it's much more profitable. It's not necessary to do things in an environmentally sustainable way. We can actually just externalize all of those costs and um, make that part of our business model. So uh, McDonald's invents the McNugget, which is a kind of chicken that doesn't require silverware. You know, Americans used to use silverware when they ate chicken. Uh, now we hardly ever do. And so, yes, we have this. It's the rise of the hand food. But, you know, it's, uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, it's, it's just that it's worth questioning why we have the habits that we have. Uh, you know, a common defense you'll hear for um, eating meat is it's natural. We've been doing it forever everywhere. And there is some truth to that. Um, but there are some very good responses to it. Like, um, having done something just about everywhere, just about always, is no reason to do it now. I mean, humans have had other... Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, not to mention, you know, human progress is, is the transcendence of what's natural. Here we are on this radio show. There's a microphone between us. There's electricity. We're both wearing glasses. You know, in the, in the wild, in nature, these defenders of nature, would they say that, that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing now? Um, but finally, um, these aren't historical habits. You know, we're, everybody's going to celebrate Thanksgiving soon. So let me, let me differentiate this. I mean, yes, you mentioned Thanksgiving and, and turkeys and the holidays and this cultural thing, but, but throughout human history, humans have hunted and they've, they've eaten meat. It's been part of their diet. I mean, tribes have struggled to bring a mastodon back into the, into the tent and realized they needed a bigger tent. I mean, I mean you know, it's... it's I mean, are you, meat has always been a part of the human diet. Yes, there have been vegetarian eaters and, and fruitarians and so on and so forth, but... I mean, it seems to me that you're saying that we have trained ourselves to eat far more meat than we need to. We don't. Any meat is more meat than we need to. I mean, it can certainly be part of a healthy diet, but you won't find any respectable nutritionist who says we need to eat it. The ADA, the American Dietetic Association, which is the gold standard for nutritional advice in this country, makes clear not only that we don't need it, but that we're better without it. Um, yes, cavemen ate meat. Yes, people 200 years ago, 100 years ago ate meat. They also treated women as second-class citizens. You know, humans have... Well, now that's a logical leap that I'm not sure I'd go <laughs> along with. But. I'm not, I, I, my, only, my only point is to return to this idea that sometimes systems that have been in place almost everywhere, almost always, get replaced. And very shortly after replacing them, we look back at what was in place and say, how could we have ever done that? And I think we're going to look back at least at factory farming and say, how could we have ever done that? The, uh, uh, when, when you were uh, uh, younger, you said that you would sometimes try out vegetarianism as a way of getting girls. Well, I, let me say, I never got girls, but it, <laughs> it was a way of um, being slightly closer to, there were these women, very attractive um, female activists at my high school. And I thought, um, this is a way to sidle up next to them. Um, 
maybe I wasn't extreme enough to actually touch them, but um, no, I mean, my habits have swung very widely. I mean, I've had periods when I would eat anything that was put in front of me and love it. I'm not, by the way, the kind of, I am a vegetarian. I'm not the kind of vegetarian who thinks meat is repulsive. I think it smells great. And I know it tastes great. There are, not, you know, there are plenty of people in the world who simply don't have a taste for it. I do. So I'm not approaching this pretending that I have an indifference toward it. Frankly, I think that acknowledgement, at least, you know, for me, it, it makes the choice so much more meaningful. It's easy to choose against things that have no significance for you. This matters to me. And all the cultural associations really matter to me. Like, my dad used to grill turkey burgers in the yard, and I loved that. I loved thinking about it. My grandmother makes brisket. I love that. It was, you know, smelling it reminds me of um, actually her love more than anything else. And losing those things is an important loss but some kind of losses should be cultivated. And also, there's something that's gained in the process. I feel like I'm more my, my father's son and more my grandmother's grandson, actually, when I say no to those foods. Uh, have you become a, a better cook? I've become a much better cook because um, it compels you to diversify. And we've become used, in this country, we've become very used to selecting very few things, making them comprise the better part of a plate, it's very easy, it's very filling, it's not a coincidence that so many people eat this stuff so often, but it's been nice to you know, learn about other kinds of foods. It makes meals richer, more interesting. There's a, uh, you know, when you read the, the newspapers as well, I mean, you, and you read about a, an outbreak of a disease, say for instance, a, a form of E. coli that's you know, paralyzed a woman and you, and you, and you learn that um, meat that even gets into the school system comes from three or four or five different countries with different standards of, of cleaning where the carcasses are washed down with ammonia to try to clear you know, some you know, disease off, perhaps. And then the meat all gets chopped up, mixed up, and then sent off to schools. And even cooking doesn't necessarily always kill what's... Uh, that, that would seem to be enough to be off-putting. People still go out and, and you know, enjoy it. I mean... Yeah. Why? This is the question. Well, I guess we're each asking why. I think there are a lot of answers. One is there isn't a clear line of sight you know, between us and our food sources. That's not seeing the food chain. We can't see it. People have made it impossible for us to see it. And there's so much misinformation. You know, if you go to, you know what the fastest growing sector in the entire food industry is right now? I bet you know. I do know. <laughs> um, it's free range and cage free eggs. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that say something amazing about American consumers? That's not in Berkeley. That's not in New York. That's in the country. Free range and cage-free eggs don't taste better. They're not healthier for us. People want these things because they have an instinct that it matters. It matters how these animals are raised. The problem is these labels are totally manipulative. They don't mean anything. A free-range chicken, we could have 4,000 free-range chickens on our stage right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, kept in uh, a tiny little windowless shed, drugs pumped in, and sell it to consumers for more than, than we would sell um, conventional eggs. And they would spend more of their hard-earned money because they felt like they were pursuing their better instincts. So it's not simply that there isn't a clear line of sight. It's that we're um, very, very actively manipulated. Well, when you say totally, I mean, do you mean totally? I mean, do you think that, I mean... You know, that, that people aren't, you know, that the chickens aren't, you know, free to roam like the buffalo in all places? I mean, I mean, are there people who raise egg, raise chickens and, and, uh, and have eggs uh, uh, in 
circumstances that are sort of more comfortable, more free, that aren't totally manipulative? I mean, are there, aren't there people dedicated to that idea? There are. There are. And as I said, I devoted quite a lot of my, I just d devoted a, a really disproportionate amount of my book to such people. Maybe 20% of my book is celebrating small and family farmers, even though they are less than 1% of American agriculture. But, you know, even these farmers who have, um, let's, let's take um, Joel Salatin. This might be a name that people are familiar with. An Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael Pollan um, highlights, features Joel Salatin. And um, Joel Salatin has this wonderful method, um, of, uh, a very, you know, ostensibly sustainable method of raising his chickens where it's a constant cycle. They're eating this, they're pooping that, this grows here, they eat that, and so on forever. The problem is, and this is a real problem with poultry in our country, is everybody with the rarest of rare, rare, rare exceptions is growing the same genetic types of birds. So Joel Salatin gets his birds in the mail in a cardboard box, and he's raising the same birds that KFC raises. And these are birds that are bred to suffer. KFC kills their birds in 39 days. Chickens in the nature would live 10 years. Joel Salatin kills his birds at 42 days. Why does he kill his birds at 42 days? Is it because he is so eager to make that profit and turn around another batch? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think the answer is because these birds cannot live out of their adolescence. They have been bred to grow so monstrously quickly on so little food that if they start to grow out of their adolescence, their bones begin to break, their tendons begin to slip. Um, you know, uh, one, of my, uh, one of the poultry farmers named Frank Reese, who I feature in the book, who is the kind of guy you're talking about, who is raising healthy animals in healthy ways, in humane ways, said um, of, of these kinds of free-range farms, it's like putting a broken-down Honda on the Audubon and calling it a Porsche. You know, the conditions are nice, I suppose, but if you've got something that is literally bred to suffer, we have put all of our human resources, all of our technology, all of our science into creating animals that suffer more. Isn't, isn't being bred to suffer also part of the human condition? I mean, if you look at it, the existential human? It's certainly been a good part of my own experience. <laughs> the, the, the idea that, uh, okay, so, so we want to be persuaded that the food that we eat is being nobly treated, it's being thanked in the way native peoples would thank the deer for giving its life for us to continue to live and so on and so forth, but that's not apparently the case in, in many of these operations. Um, so is the, is the choice you're saying carrots and broccoli and lettuce and tofu, or is it to find a farm uh, where we will occasionally get a steak from a, a cow that's been treated well? I think different people will find the answer in different places. You know, I, I have my own opinions, and I describe them in the book, but I hope it's clear to any reader of the book I'm not pushing my own conclusions so much as the questions. Um, I appreciate that different people have different personal histories and different associations, and it's, it's easier for some people to change than it is for others. It's far, far easier for younger people to change. This has been shown. There's a direct correlation between how old you are and how difficult it is to change your diet. That's old dogs, new tricks. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. Um, oh, my dog will never go vegetarian, speaking of old dogs. But do, do, you, do you think, let me, one of the things that struck me in, in, in this is that we, we get very concerned about how we treat animals and, and with reason. I also wonder why we don't get as concerned about the way 
children are treated, the poor are treated, refugees, immigrants. I mean, that in some times there's more attention paid to kindness toward animals than kindness toward human beings. It's a mistake. Um, as it turns out, we don't have a finite amount of compassion. As it turns out, people who care about one thing tend to care about other things. Uh, you will find that people who care about animals do much more uh, for children and refugees than people who don't. This is not an opinion. This is not anecdotal. Um, so if you're a meat eater and eat a lot of it, you're unkind? No. no, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, uh, what I would say is um, caring is a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. So, for example, in the process of writing this book, I found myself caring about things like um, shopping at local stores. I used to order lots of things on the internet. It was just more convenient. It was often cheaper. For whatever reason, in the course of this three-year process of learning about animal agriculture, I became a different kind of consumer, having nothing to do with food. Isn't that, isn't that strange? And I can't quite explain it other than to say I started caring about one thing and it inspired me to care about other things. So, caring about where you live and the environment your child is growing into. Yeah, what our community is going to look like. These things are interrelated. So people often use this argument against caring about animals. So if we care about them, where, where, what, what are we, what, where, where will be our compassion reserves? No, no, no. It's not a, I'm not using it as an argument against caring for animals. I'm just talking about the nature of humans to sometimes care about animals more than humans. Well, our natures um, lead us to very unusual kinds of caring. There have been psychological um, studies that show that in a commercial in which um, they did a test where they had hungry children in a commercial, a, a mock commercial. In a commercial where they have one child, um, people care a certain amount. In a commercial where they show a thousand children, people care much less. They give less money. Then they did a study where they have one child and two children, and still people were willing to give much less money to two children than they were to one child. So we do have these um, instincts that, that aren't great, and we have to work against them. So how do we work against them? We don't work against them by throwing our hands up in the air. We don't work against them by saying, I don't want to know about it. This is too much. I can't get involved. We work against them by having informed conversations like this one, which I'm so grateful to have. You know, we, we tr do our best to learn about what's going on, and then we talk about it. Just nothing is more important than talking about it. I would say this Thanksgiving, the question isn't whether you have a turkey or not. Go for the stuffing, not the bird. <laughs> Depends where the stuffing was. Yeah, well, as long as it's not a sausage, <laughs> stuffing. Uh, you know, I, I just, about oysters? I think that, uh, I think it's a great idea to have a conversation with our families. Not at the Thanksgiving table. That's a bad place to have it. <laughs> but in the weeks before, and not an accusational conversation, not one that makes somebody feel pinned or challenged or defensive, but just like, who are we as a family? What are we celebrating? What are our ideas of harvest? What are our ideas of thankfulness, gratefulness, bounty? And what would be the best symbols of that? And different families will reach different conclusions, and that's fine. But not, reach a not reaching a conclusion, being willfully ignorant, that's not that's not who, how anybody here wants to think of himself. As a, as a writer, did you, what sort of novel writing uh, technique did you bring to this book? I mean, in, in, in some ways, it, it, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, a Jonathan Safran Foer book. I mean, there are interesting titles, there are illustrations, there are, you know, I mean, there's a, a way of writing that is, it is yours. I mean, how, how as a writer did you bring your, your uh, 
I, I guess, your style to the subject? Were you conscious of that in, in writing the book? I wasn't. Um, the, the poet Auden said, I look at what I write so that I can see what I think. And that's really been my experience. I don't come to a book with strategies. I don't come to a book with a story to tell or voices that I've um, found and need to share. Um, nothing is burning inside of me that has to get out. Instead, I face a blank page and I try to fill it. And in the process of filling it, which often involves following my instincts or moving away from what might have been a smart plan, um, I get a kind of portrait of myself. And, I, and, and it's interesting. We all walk around with ideas of who we are and what we're thinking about and what we care about. And one wonderful thing about writing, and one reason I think everybody should write, is that um, you're presented with a different kind of portrait. So my first book, Everything is Illuminated, if somebody had asked me before I wrote it, do you think of yourself as someone with a strong Jewish identity? I probably would have said, not really. Do you think of yourself as somebody who's very concerned with family and family history? I probably would have said, not really. And then I wrote this book, and it's like the bloody glove, you know, in the trial where they say, well, the defendant has been saying this whole time, la, 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 and yet here is the bloody glove. And the book was the bloody glove. And I had to say, I guess I do have a strong Jewish identity. I guess I do think a lot about family and my genealogy, Eastern Europe, the war. So... It's nice to let things come to the surface. And this is a work of nonfiction, so it was different. I was constrained. In fiction, you go wherever you want to go. In nonfiction, for every one, uh, four pages of text, there's a page of footnotes in this book. It was very rigorously journalistic in that sense. Including all those extended hyperlinks in the, in the back of the book. Right. But at the same time, I found things coming to the surface. You know, I found that when I was thinking about the inside of a factory farm, I was also thinking about the stories my grandmother told me at the kitchen table. That when I was thinking about the environmental effects of, um, you know, uh, let's just say hog manure, I was also uh, thinking about the ways we used to laugh at the dinner table when I was a kid with my older brothers and parents. These things are related. And trying to extricate food from that web of associations, trying to make it something that is just statistics and data and reason, it doesn't work. It's not truthful. Do you find yourself attracted to the, the nonfiction world, uh, the idea of, of, you know, sort of skullduggery and going around and investigating? Do you think you've found a shift in yourself? Um, I'm attracted to it insofar as I will never do it again. Uh, <laughs> I... I love reading nonfiction. I actually might even prefer reading nonfiction to fiction. But I'm a novelist. That's how I think of myself. I'm working on a novel now. I, I find it very hard to imagine that I will ever write nonfiction again. This is a very particular subject, both because I've been thinking about it since I was a child, so it had a kind of duration, an appeal that, that was durable, because there was an urgency of having a child and wanting to explore it, because it's just so intellectually and aesthetically fascinating, but also because there's this profound silence that surrounds it. I care about many other things. I care about children, as you were saying. I care about refugee problems. I care about war. But there are other people who care about these things and write about them in ways that are far better than I ever could. Nobody really writes about meat. I think any book that's ever been written is written because the author wants to read it. You know, there's a sense of absence. If the book already existed that you wanted to read, there would be no need, no need to make it. It would be redundant. I wanted to read a book that was a full exploration of meat. 
and um, it didn't exist in the way in the way that I wanted it to. So I, I tried to do it. Where would you put uh, books like uh, Orville Shell's Modern Meat or uh, Jeffrey Mason's book about? Uh, I mean, he had a similar uh, take on on, on yours. Uh, what was it Animals of the Face? I think was the name of it. Um, I mean, these are these are books that have sort of. Um, and then, of course, what was it Up Upton Sinclair? You know, has also looked at this. Or, I mean, did you sort of look at those books and say, yeah, well, yeah, but they haven't done what I want to do? I looked at those books. I learned a lot from those books. Um, you can probably see traces of them in, in my own book. But I felt like they didn't approach the subject with the same, uh, acknowledging the same human messiness that I, that I tried to, you know. Again, there's, there are things that we know and there are things that we do, and the distance between those has to be explained somehow. And I think it's explained not by saying people are weak or people are just naturally hypocrites, but by saying the picture is very big and our decisions are influenced by these other things. And these other things, not only should they not be brushed off, you know, again, our culture and our identity, but I'm convinced that if we really explore them and if we really get into them, they will be further encouragement to say no. You know, I like the taste of some meat. I like the placement of the turkey on the Thanksgiving table. But I also like feeling like myself. I also like acting on the values that were given to me by, by my grandmother and by my parents. And um, with Thanksgiving, for example, it's possible that the absence of this symbol will convey more than the symbol ever could. You know, it's possible that removing this thing from the table will allow for a better transmission of values, will allow for more gratefulness and thankfulness and um, celebrating harvest than the presence ever could. And I'd go even further and say, I think that the removal of the turkey will make Thanksgiving more like Thanksgiving. You know, I, I remember Benjamin Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national bird. I mean, he thought it was a, a better bird than the eagle. He thought the eagle was bellicose, and 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 uh, he, he just thought the turkey was represented America more. Do you think if the turkey was the national bird, it would be a protected species then? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, we're certainly not having bald eagle for dinner, are we? <laughs> um, I have no idea. Turkeys are absolutely majestic animals. If you've ever seen a wild, I mean, I'm sure you have, a wild turkey. When I went, to there, there are some that strut around Berkeley. Is that so? Yeah, there's a flock of them. Right, with the dreadlocks. I think I've seen those. Um, <laughs> at Frank Reese's farm outside of Wichita, Good Shepherd Farm, if you really do want to have a turkey this Thanksgiving, if you can't conceive of not having one, I would encourage you to, to order from him to check out his farm. It might mean that it will have to be shipped to you, which has its own problems. Carbon footprint. Yikes. Yes. But... Um, in any case, there are resources. You are very lucky to live in this area because you do have a lot of small family farms and people who care about how their animals are treated and care about the environmental footprint. You know, I, I went to a, a, a farm some Thanksgivings ago and uh, up in uh, Sonoma County. I don't know that it still exists, but the, it was a, a poultry farm, and you know, I, I think I got a couple of pheasant for the Thanksgiving dinner I was doing with friends. But one of the birds that they were selling were the... Um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name now. Uh, guinea fowls, guinea fowls. And it was, uh, uh, the, the guinea fowl has kind of a purplish flesh when it's cooked up. And at the time, this was I think in the 80s when I, when I did this, uh, he was saying his 
not only was his flock that year of guinea fowls committed, but it was committed for generations to come because the guinea fowl had been described as the food that slaves ate in the South and that black families throughout Northern California were choosing to have guinea fowl as their Thanksgiving bird rather than the, the turkey. And so they had these orders going out into the future. I don't know if it's still around or not. That's very, uh, it's very touching. You know, a lot of, Frank Reese was telling me. It, it had come out of the film Roots. People had seen the film Roots and had learned about it. Frank Reese, every Thanksgiving, gets more orders than, um, than he, he gets orders for more turkeys than he has raised in his entire life. There's an incredible demand for this kind of stuff. But he was also telling me that people are curious not only about the bird that they're buying, but the, the lineage of the bird, actually. Like, what, did its parents run free? Did its parents run free? <laughs> Um, you know, the turkeys that we buy in stores now are incapable of reproducing sexually. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I, would, I would have assumed that looking at them there on the counter. Uh, I, <laughs> they've lost their plumage. No, I, I mean, e even when they're alive, they were incapable. Oh, of, I did not. Yeah. Know um, and this gets to, I mean, this is the... So how, how do they reproduce? Are they clone? How, how, are they, how do they reproduce? Artificial insemination. So, um, in any case, I mention that not only because, of course, it's so antithetical to our ideas of harvest and the things that we think we're celebrating at Thanksgiving. Here's a bird that cannot even reproduce sexually and cannot live outdoors. It can't how, how distracted in your research did you get? I mean, I mean when you come up with a fact like this, doesn't it take you down an interesting byway for a, a good distance? Yeah, it's, I mean, of course. And the problem with this stuff is they are the absolute perfect cocktail party facts, except that nobody wants to hear them. So they're like these riveting, extremely weird pieces of information, but there isn't a great context in which to share them, you know? But I, Hence the book. You've given them a context. Exactly, exactly. But I was, I was mentioning this fact about the reproduction of turkeys because it's a nice counterpoint to the story you were telling about people who really do want to get in touch with you know, their roots. They want to be part of a chain of associations. And for some people, they will say, um, that chain is about something deeper than what we put in our mouths. It's about lessons that we're learning about what it means to be a person in the world, what it means to have dominion um, over things less powerful than us. But there are other people who, who will not be able to remove food from that line of associations. And what you're talking about is you know, very, very appealing. It's very captivating of trying to eat the foods that your ancestors really did eat. The book is called Eating Animals, Jonathan Safran Four. And uh, thank you very much for coming by and talking about it. Thank you. Thank you. Bright green cover, furry letters. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.